Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of One Vision. Happy May Day today. This is the day we're recording. And to commemorate the special day, we have all four hosts of Rhetoric, now One Vision together. So we have Effie, we have Arun, we have Brad, and myself, Theo. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Uh, it's been quite a year. Um, I felt like April would never end, but clearly, finally, thank goodness it did. Um, but if you look at what's been going on, aside from, you know, if we don't watch about um, the news on, on, on all the economics of it, if we just look strictly at the funding side, it almost feels like the party has not ended. It, the wheels keep turning. So, Arun, I'm going to throw that to you. What is going on? I see a lot of news about new funds being raised, right? Not just in the U.S., but also across Europe, and uh, new fintechs getting funding. Well, uh, there is going to be a bit of a lag um, in in how the funding is going to dry up uh, post this crisis. Um, however, one thing I will say is uh, the funding for early stage ventures, it's it's quite, I mean, it's very hard for early stage ventures, venture capital to uh, to go on. I mean, most ventures, they don't get, they don't have funding. They are just trying to uh, grasp at uh, uh, straws at the moment and trying to figure out how they keep their heads above water, at least for the next, um, uh, for, for the rest of the year. Um, most, at least, most of my portfolio funds, we are just finding out different ways of financing, be it government grants, uh, debt financing, um, and even if they wanted to fundraise, uh, from a, from an equity perspective, we are pushing them towards uh, convertible because uh, because they are not going to get a fair deal at this point. If they went out into the market, um, they may get um, a very low valuation. And investors are seeing the desperation as well. So uh, it's it's uh, at one end of the spectrum that is that is happening. But there there are also opportunities where um, if you think about it, there's quite a lot of private equity dry powder. Um, which means some of the bigger deals that have been around the corner is kind of closing now. So I was talking to the CFO of a, of a fintech that's li literally been acquired by Prudential. Um, this, this, they, they had its fastest um, fastest uh, fintech exit in three years, and I think 3.8 billion people. I, I should have been um, based out of New York, and uh, and they managed to close it close it through the heights of the cycle, probably. Three or four weeks before the the, the, the peak, it is peak, but they still close the close the deal, uh, and, and and private equity deals are perhaps going to happen until maybe June, July, and perhaps even into Q3. But then it's going to slow down a little bit. We will see a couple of quarters of slowdown, and then probably it will start bouncing back because I I still think this is going to be a the, hit, the recession that hit us very fast, and then it kind of. Um, and and kind of uh, gone, uh, went away. Uh, I think the worst is behind us at this point, and we are going to see a slope rather than a cliff from here on. Uh, but I think we are probably, uh, yeah. So that that's that's probably what I think. Uh, the big deals at this point, the next two three weeks, maybe four weeks, you're going to see some big deals close. After that, it's going to be a quiet period. Is is what I'm thinking. I mean, you know, so Arun from from the sort of investment side of it, I think we're going to see an awful lot of M&A activity. Um, I was talking to Howard Lindston this morning, and we were talking about stocks, and I, I was mentioning, you know, on deck and other companies that have gone public and sort of the challenge around credit startups right now. And, you know, we, we went out and looked at on deck stock price, and it's about a buck, 
you know, did IPO in the last, what, 18 months or something, um, 12 months at like 20 something. And, you know, Lending Club and all these other stocks that are public that were former fintech startups are, are just getting hammered. And there's going to be so much, I think, consolidation and continued acquisition in the space. But he brought up a good point when we were talking about companies and talking about investments. And he said, you know, how much M&A is going to happen in the next quarter based on, you know, some of the lack of ability to kind of dive into books and do, you know, your normal due diligence when you're sitting there face to face with founders and your teams and these type of things. But this is, you know, again, sort of a new normal with investments and a new normal with M&A. And I think much of that doesn't have to be done in person. So I think we're going to continue to see that activity. The other thing, I just thinking about what you said, um, I don't think this is going to be just like, you know, a, a B on, on this economic, you know, hit. I think that this is actually going to have a much bigger long-term impact on not just startup investing, but the economic hit that is happening to consumers and is happening to the changes in the way that we look at um, how people are spending money and how people are thinking about savings and investments right now. Um, that's going to change more than what the Great Recession did to FinTech. And so I actually am, am going to look in my crystal ball and say the next 10 or 15 years is going to be even more startups focused on financial services. I mean, we're looking at FT partners just came up with their first, first quarter look and it's, it's going to be close to 50 billion a year this year, again, in investments in FinTech. And that's just a clip under what it was last year when we saw the peak. So I'm, I'm really bullish on, on how FinTech is going to continue to take this charge. Well, so let, let's ca- carry on that theme a little bit, right? So we're looking at potentially, you know, good-sized investments still continuing on along the theme of helping consumers um, do better or, or, you know, be able to budget and, and spend better and, and all of this to improve their financial health, if you will. So one of the big news that, that came uh, last week, along with all the investment, is Stash. So Stash closed $112 million Series F. And that was led by Lending Tree and T Road Price. That is not a small number, right? So, Effie, what do you what do you think about that? What do you make of it? It's actually very interesting because if you think of it, that started as a micro investing app, and of course, it's broadened the offering and it's been building kind of a platform um, with uh, banking and and lending services and 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 more. So the question in my mind is always asking as these platforms are growing and I'm thinking of SoFi, right? That started from refinancing student loans, mortgages, and has gone into uh, investing and, and lending and now has gone to Asia um, and others. You know, you can look at Betterment that started as a robo-advisor and is adding more and more. So. The question that comes to mind is, does it matter where you started um, to to build out this complete offering and um, sort of keep the customer and stash the right positioning? And, and when I think of it, I look at what is their secret source. It seems that their secret source has been this... Um, what's it called, the stock um, stock back scheme that they have. 
where when you use um, the, the platform, you uh, get um, um, instead of uh, a normal rewards or points or discounts, you get stocks of what you purchase. So you order from Chipotle food, and as a reward, you get Chipotle stock. They've got these schemes. And the question is, is that proprietary? And why is it valuable? And I think there they have a secret source because there's network effects of the stock back. So what happens is once you get those rewards in Chipotle stock, let's say, you kind of start getting to know Chipotle. And what Stash has realized is you start adding more money and moving more money to Stash to increase your positions in that stock and in the sector. So it's they figured out how to build network effects and gather more assets. They've got about a billion of assets from a micro-investing app. So I think that you know the market has shown in the US, and I say I stress it in the US because I'm not sure that that would um, work in, in Europe. Um, they, they have built a, a platform that has a network effects. So I think that's their differentiating factor, and that's what their investors saw. So I just have a point to add there um, in terms of uh, going back to the investor uh, or investment conversation. Um, that is definitely going to be a correction within fintech. We, we think there are opportunities for fintech uh, now and probably in new, new ways of doing fintech even. But there, there's been a much-needed correction that's happening at the moment. So um, I was talking to a VC this morning, and uh, um, he focuses on growth opportunities or, or, or growth stage firms. And he has seen calls, an hour call, over which um, a firm that wasn't even valued $30 million or didn't have anything to substantiate a 30 million pound valuation, uh, was given a funding of 30 million pound at a much, much higher valuation. And all that was decided over a single call, primarily because they called themselves a neobank. And, and he basically said that's not the only instance of such things happening. happening. Um, things were so crazy. Uh, and, and, and now I'm starting to see such deals vanish because that's not happening anymore. People are looking at the fundamentals a bit more. The, the, the merits of the deal is now being uh, questioned, and that's a good thing. I think uh, that, that much-rated correction is happening at the moment. And when we say that fintech is going to boom, yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of opportunities. I mean, I'm hearing, particularly in India, uh, due to the lockdown, people are using Paytm, PhonePay, and uh, Google Pays in a much, much bigger way, so the um, uh, payments is now booming. However, lending has completely shut down. Fintechs that are lending are going to be really struggling for the next 6 to 12 months. Um, at the same time, insurance is picking up as well. So the, the clusters within financial services, fintech stroke insurtech, there are going to be different ways each of these evolve as we go move forward or, or find our feet through, the, through this uh, crisis. I don't. I don't disagree. You know, in in some of the premise around these applications, um, especially getting people into investments, I I struggle with the idea. You know, because I've I think I've been getting stash notifications for you know two or three years now, and it's it's interesting the way that they are using education to sort of draw people in. But you know, how are you going to become profitable 
when you have $60 accounts, right? How are you going to have a fractional share of Amazon over 10 years actually make the company money? And it's, you know, it's $115 million as a strategic investment because they'll eventually acquire it. That's how I look at it, right? So they're, they're building the opportunity for it. Yeah, and I agree too. I think as interesting as it is, I think a couple of years ago when this all of these micro-investing first started, we call it democratizing the opportunity for people to invest. But looking at where we are right now with the economy, right, when we have over 30 million people that filed for unemployment in the United States, when on that came out today and say that over 45% of their small business loans are going to go delinquent. When people struggle to even find food. I would find it very hard to believe that you will actually have people that will have money left to do all these micro-investing. Sure, there are a lot of people that are reaping the benefits of the stock market, but they're not the ones that's gonna be using these little micro-investing tools, right? They are the ones that's gaming from what's going on with the stock market. As a matter of fact, I think, um, was it last week, that um, an organization called inequality.org that produced a wealth inequality report and said that why are we are sitting here with all these millions and millions of workers who got laid off? The billionaires in the United States, they have increased their wealth by $282 billion. Now, think about that for a second. It's higher than that. I actually saw a number number that's almost half a billion now. So it's like, you know, every day they make more money. I think that the additional challenge, you know, in the short term isn't going to be getting people investing. It's going to be figuring out how things like, you know, what they tried to do with PPP and what they tried to do with, you know, these limited $1,200 checks. It's just very inconsistent. Um, other countries outside of the U.S. are, you know, doing a blanket. Here, Here's just money to everybody. It doesn't matter, like, what, you, what you're doing now. It doesn't matter. And, and just the, the sheer idea that we roll out something to help small businesses and then we have not just businesses that are publicly traded or businesses that are well-funded or individuals that certainly do not need that money applying for loans of any kind is absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of hurt in the short term. Um, The challenge is going to be what type of companies are going to be having their genesis in these moments. And I think in the end, we'll be better off for it. But we we just took, you know, equality, economic inequality, Um, income inequality, all of these pieces back a decade. And it's going to take a lot to get back. Actually, Effie, I'm curious, though. um, I I wanted to ask you that because along that theme, right, if we're looking at how governments are helping individuals as well as businesses, um, in the U.S., we've seen, you know, what's clearly not working. We see in the U.K. an approach. But from what I understand from you, though, Switzerland takes a different approach to the startups, right? They're not really helping them out or bailing them as much as, let's say, the UK or some other countries are? 100%. Uh, and there has been a complaint, and there might be a fund for startups here. But remember, this is the decentralized, uh, the most realistic decentralization um, uh, example of a country. Uh, and that means, you know, not only politically, but the economy too. So there's much less of intervention, if you want, um, in that sense uh, uh, for for uh, the companies. 
but what I think is really going to be the innovation, and Aru, maybe you start uh, seeing uh, some startups in that space, is we need innovation in um, how to earn your living. That's really where we need innovation. Um, and technology can help there. Uh, I was shown a startup um, the other day, a startup, um, um, it's, it's early, that is actually focused on, on that. And I think that is the big uh, sector. And obviously, it has a big financial component to it. But it's in that vertical that we really need to see some innovation. Uh, and actually, you know, banks again could deploy their data along those lines for that innovation. They should be sort of seeding that innovation in-house instead of other um, types of innovation that fit uh, their current, you know, um, uh, the current business model. Uh, for me also, banks, if you think of them as uh, places, vaults for our data, our financial data, think of them like that. And maybe FinTech has led us to think of them more like that since other FinTechs can process that data, right? Be it for lending, be it for other uh, reasons. So why not have banks step in and keep our COVID-19 precious data instead of having telcos or Googles or Apples or whatever stepping in and saying, we'll do it for you. So those are the types of innovations that are really, you know, disruptive and should come out of this. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. It, it, it's interesting, though. I see, but I think as as much, so from the last from the last two months, a couple of things we see. Right, one is we see um, the signups for a lot of the digital the, the challenger banks going down, and people are like, "Oh my God, the sky's falling." Um, obviously, I think we're still early, and and there are different speculation as to why that's happening. People are probably trusting the main street banks more because it's been around. There, you know, there is history. Um, relationships already set up and et cetera, et cetera, as a bigger financial institution um, and, and all of that. And then there's the um, the mistrust, distrust of big techs on what are you doing with my data um, and a fine line drawn between privacy and efficacy. Um, and then we see uh, Bo and RBS mm. and the experiment on how to how not to innovate, how not to throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. And 
I, I think, and then, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have in the U.S. where we see literally systems and infrastructures and everything crumbling down because we are, um, as Joanne Barefoot wrote in her op-ed yesterday, we are trying to solve a 21st century problem with 20th century infrastructure. That's really making it hard to work. Um, I don't know, Arun, if you think that, what do you think banks need to do? To, to step up? What is their role here? How would they make it work? I think they probably have uh, have failed in the way they have executed the idea. Um, it's not just Bo, right? I mean, there are so many other um, um, initiatives, uh, like, for instance, even Metal, right? Uh, it started and there were some hiccups as well. Uh, but the challenge with some of the big banks is they have grown over uh, decades, if not um, uh, centuries, to, to get to where they are. Um, but now, the, the customer acquisition strategy, the growth strategy that uh, firms like Revolutes and the Monzos of the world have taken, it's, it's completely different. It's, it's, the, the mindset has to be different. Um, and unfortunately, the growth mindset is, is what has got them there. And it's, it's very hard for a traditional institution to just go and crack that uh, growth uh, mindset. It is going to take some time. And um, I mean, I, I feel this because every time I go have a conversation with an American VC, uh, the way they think about uh, growth is different to the way I look at it. I'm like, why the hell are you actually throwing so much money into this particular business? I keep asking that. That is also partly because I've kind of learned the trade from a, uh, European kind of us in a European setup, so the mindsets are different, and the American mindset is completely different, and and that is what both Monzo and the Revolutes of the world have embraced, and it's very hard to actually replicate it in a traditional institution, and that is why I think it's going to be, uh, I mean I would be I'd be surprised if a British bank actually cracks it, um, to be honest. I mean that's why, and I'm not surprised why Marcus is, is is an outlier in that sense. Oh, everyone, everyone, everyone. The differences between Europe and the U.S. and everywhere else. So why doesn't, you know, Ant Financial work in Europe? Why doesn't Amanza work in the U.S.? Why doesn't, uh, you know, Chase uh, own all of Europe? Um, this is really the question of the day with FinTech going in the next decade, is it not? Um, when I think about, you know, some of the things that we just said, there's a couple of thoughts. One, the U.S., you know, we, we're so backwards in payments and we still write checks and all of these things. This is true. And yet we have 10,000 financial institutions, and even in the Bay Area, we have literally 1,000-plus fintechs. And I just think about the difference between not just venture, but banking across these you know, different geographies. Everybody right now is in the state of flux. And what we're going to see again in the next 10 to 15 years is going to be quite amazing. But the biggest difference, I think, between the U.S. and the markets is this. Healthcare being tied to employment is huge and significant and really rears its ugly head right now, especially because we have 30 million people that are jobless that weren't six weeks ago. And so when we're looking at 15% unemployment or higher, and we already on top of that have system, you know, systemic unemployment and under uh, employment because of this rise of the gig economy, because of the idea that jobs are you know, much more transient than they used to be, the companies in the next decade that are going to sort of continue to build and create value, I think are going to be around what Effie said, which is the income side of the balance sheet. It's one thing to get people to save and invest more. It's another thing to optimize their income opportunities. And so there's several companies, you know, we work with Stuvo, uh, which is one of them, which is, you know, a team of uh, 
current Googlers. And they, you know, are trying to optimize um, gig economy work. And what they've found from their users so far is that there's like been an 85, 90% drop in the income coming from um, people using like Uber and Lyft. But then they kind of flip over to like food delivery and these type of things, but it's not making up for the income. These are literally people that, you know, used to have you know, $600, $1,000 a week because they were driving so much. And now they could only do two or $300 in the same replacement for food delivery. And there was a, a, a message um, that circulated widely yesterday about DoorDash and um, these other companies and how much money they're taking out of small businesses, small uh, business, restaurants and on the food delivery. And it was like, you know, instead of getting $1,100, they were getting like $200 because the food delivery prices were eating so much out of it. If that's what Silicon Valley is going to create, be replicated across other markets in terms of taking more so that people that have income and wealth already can simply get more because they're part of these companies, that's not sustainable. We're going to have billions of people continue to have economic problems. So the companies that are going to win the next decade are the ones that actually are increasing the value for consumers and small businesses and creating income opportunities. So, you know, regardless of the difference between markets, there's so much that can be done that I think are, are great companies that are going to scale. So it's going to be interesting to watch, but man, right now we've got a host of problems. I would add to it, though, too, is um, it, it's more than just the valley creating technology that's making the problem worse. I think part of that also, at least in the U.S., is from a policy perspective, right? Our tax policy. Why on earth would we have these giant companies that are barely paying any taxes, right? If you think about all of that money where it could have gotten to, to improved infrastructure, perhaps we'll be in a slightly better state. Or why is it that most of our healthcare are private? So that we end up closing hospitals in the rural areas because quote unquote, we can't make money. And as we have seen in the last two, three months, this became a giant problem for us, for people who live in rural areas who have to travel half an hour just to go to a hospital, right? Because we privatize all of these essential services. We call these people essential workers. Sorry, it's, um, you know, there's a pandemic going on, but you must report back to the pork factory because we need to have our bacons. You need to do something to take care of these people, right? And we're not doing that as a country, as a society, and as an economy, and we need to do better. But that's about the mind shift, and the narrative has always been to maximize shareholder value, right, to to maximize the profitability of the company, the incentives within the companies for the decision makers have always been, you know, incentivizing them to to be very short term and what Brad said, to take as much value out of the production process or the service offering as possible. We need to change that. We need to look at organizations as live organisms that include the people that are working in the company, the employees, the, the customers as in, you know, that buy the products and the services, the owners and the investors. Why should it be the owners and the, the investors that get 
you know, all the value and not um, the rest of the world, right? Which brings me to, to, you know, one type of fintech, for example. I want to bring up this example where, let's say, you know, the freemium brokerage business, right? So much money, so much funding went into fintechs because they were offering democratizing um, uh, stock investing, you know, the Robin Hoods of the world. And guess what? What is that? Why is that a sustainable business? What is it offering to society? And on the back of it, basically having to make money um, by selling order flow. Why fund a business like that? It's, I mean, it's, it's giving nothing to what is called economic value. And, and we have to distinguish between economic and financial value. Financial value is, you know, just the, 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 the um, um, uh, net profit, if you want, and all those numbers that we see uh, um, reported by accountants. But economic value is the important factor. Right? Are we creating jobs? Are we creating security? Are we, what are we creating? We have to change this mindset. And I hope that this crisis does that, starting with innovation in helping people earn their, um, uh, their living. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And and it, it it's important, right? Because we are too busy looking at something and it's time that we need to look at something that matters. We need to build what matters. And so with that, let me ask you guys something. Let's let's end this with a slightly different tone. I know it's it's really hard. It's actually getting into week eight in here. Um so what is the one thing um that we need to remain optimistic about, despite everything else that's going on. What's the silver lining? Please don't tell me that this is like a good time for us to go disrupt ourselves and learn something new. I will blow up. But other than that. Okay. So for me, I think it's uh, the biggest difference has been the blurring of the line between uh, personal and work. Um, I, I, I've, I've had some seriously um, good conversations with some very seriously big people and senior people where uh, my daughters have just come into the conversation, sat on my lap, and the conversations just went ahead. And uh, although for the initial 30 seconds it, it does feel weird, I think people have a little laugh, and then they, they carry on with the con conversation. I think that, that mindset and uh, the fact that we are all human beings at the end of the day is, for me, the biggest takeaway. And it's taken a virus to uh, stress the fact uh, that we are all human beings and not machines doing um, uh, minting money or uh, or, or, or uh, managing portfolios uh, or running uh, billion dollar businesses. Um, so I think that's that's probably my takeaway. Man, I like that one. Um, in, in the way. Uh, it makes you just sort of appreciate, I think, the conversations that we're having during this period. Um, this is, I think yesterday was day 50, so this is day 51 of our lockdown here in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And um, I would say that, you know, the type of conversations that we've been having, not just for the podcast, but for the book that we're writing and these type of things um, have been really uh, different. You're right. Um, I think it's the 
we have a life beyond um, just what we do on a day-to-day for business. And it is some connections that I think is really um, a, a interesting time. You know, when I, when I think about the, the future and I think about the type of companies that have sort of come and gone in uh, the last, you know, couple decades that I've been involved in, in the investment space and the banking space, I think things have gotten much better, even though I, I had a sort of pessimistic note about, you know, income inequality and these other pieces. I think on International Workers' Day or May Day, um, we have to remember that there are so many things to fight for. And there are so many things that during this time we've seen people help with. And it's been really heartwarming to see some financial institutions um, really go above and beyond and see a lot of fintechs go above and beyond and see people in our communities helping one another. And I hope it's something that sticks in our psyche, that sticks in our brains about what has happened, because we're going to come out of this eventually. And I just... I truly hope that this is a more empathetic world. This is a more loving world. This is a more focused world on helping one another. Effie, what about you? Well, I want to say that for me, it's um, a wonderful human experience. And all these years that I've been in FinTech, I talk about customer experience and user experience and, and that type of experience. And now, it's really a human experience. I personally have, um, um, I want to add two things. One is that it's the first time in the five years that I've been in FinTech that I have closed two clients that I have never met. So that's been unique and I think it will continue. And I think it really comes from the fact that we each of us are much more open now and don't have those stereotypes that I had them myself. It was impossible for me to think that I wouldn't go and meet them eventually in that process. But I was open and I think others are open and they will stay open because it, it, this has allowed an authenticity that didn't exist before. We were operating with certain guidelines and certain, you know, uh, rules, um, and I think that we are going to change the way we do business and it's going to be more human. I hope that we're going to be building more software tech ventures that are more human, designed with that um, uh, in mind. And again, I always stress that it should be about the employees and the users, everybody. We're all into it into this. So that's my um, perception. I also have found unique ways for the first time to see how to combine my uh, interest and focus on spirituality and what I do. And I've been asking myself this question a long time because I've always been in you know, uh, finance, Wall Street, quant stuff and so on. And I kind of thought, okay, that's, you keep it separate. These things, you know, there's the hard stuff and the number stuff and then there's the soft side. And now I'm finding uh, ways in my mind that this can coexist. And again, it has to do with the openness that has been, I sense everywhere amongst everybody. So that's my two cents. 
I like that. So there's a lot of message, positive message, right, about authenticity, about human, about focusing on, on the world around us, as well as focusing on ourselves, because we need to take care of ourselves before we can take care of others. And I sincerely hope that, as Brad and, El and as all of you have said, this will continue even as and when we do emerge from the current crisis, that we will bring this forth. Um, no more medals, please, even if we go back to the actual world, because the world is indeed 50-50. And um, let's continue the human kindness that we have seen for the last two months and continue on. So with that, thank you so much for listening in to a brand new episode of One Vision, this time with all of the four hosts together.